of what is the time, we ask the question, and this morning we continue to ask the question, but this is part two. And we spoke last week about the the seasons of life that we often find ourselves in. We considered the many pairs of opposites, there was 14 of them, starting with being born and dying, planting and plucking, uh, the two go together. Likewise, just as the farmer follows a, a preset and predictable timetable for the plucking up of these crops that have been planted, so too each person has a definite time of completion, a, completion, a, a time to leave this world and head on to the next. Both the beginning of life and the end of earthly life are controlled and fixed by God above. To some, to most of us who are here, I believe, this is an incredibly reassuring idea because everything is safe in God's hands. When we find ourselves in an undesirable season, a time of killing, a time of weeping, a time of mourning, a time of losing, a time of throwing away, a time of war, we can trust God that God will bring about an end to that season. It will not be forever. And in his providence, follow it up with a season of healing, of laughing and dancing, of keeping and of peace. All bad things are only temporary. However, for others, perhaps these words are downright depressing. Why? Because I want to be in control. I want to decide what happens to my life. And it appears that all pursuits that men place before themselves in this life have no real profit, no lasting gain. So then... It all depends on your perspective and attitude to life. So the crucial question we all need to ask ourselves is, where is God in your life? I'm not asking you where you are doctrinally, um, as in what you believe, you affirm all the doctrines and all of that. I'm saying, where is God in your life, in your everyday life? Are you living as a pagan or are you living as a believer? fully trusting in God in everything. Because I think a lot of Christians affirm what they believe. Yes, 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 I'm a Christian. And then go on living as the people of this world. If you are a Christian, live as one. If you are a child of God, then live as one. So, there is, a, there is a reassurance for us as children of God and, and, and hope for us is that we will share with God eternity with him in his presence. But before we get there, there are things to be found to, that we have to do, tasks that we, God has given us to do right now. What are they? The writer spells them out for us in the next few verses. Firstly, life 
is a gift from God, verses 9 to 10. So initially he asked this existential question. What do workers gain from their toil? Uh, We need to be careful here because he's not asking what's the point, why go on? Why must I suffer through this existence? He does recognise that a good chunk of the work and business of this life, this world, is unpleasant. This is a result of the curse that goes back to Genesis chapter 3, the fall. But he doesn't say, what then is the use of this world and this life? There is something valuable here for us in this world. And it has to do with the task that God has given each of us to do. And it's interesting how different translations um, take this, this verse or interpret this, this verse from the original Hebrew. Uh, in the NIV it says, I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. That, that comes at it from sort of a negative perspective. The ESV, I think, gets a lot closer to, to the overall meaning where he says, I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Can you see? It's more of a positive um, interpretation of it. And then in the NASB, I have seen the task which God has given the sons of mankind with which to occupy themselves. Again, So, in view of the struggle that we face from day to day, life may seem like a strange gift. But it is God's gift just the same. And so, it is unfortunate that some Christians walk through this world overdosing on the bitter medicine. They say life is just something we have to endure until the time comes where we can cross the river, we can get to the other side. But rather than complaining all the time, what we need to do is accept life as a gift and be thankful to God for it. And if you've never done this, maybe you will in the future, holding the hand of somebody who's, who's about to die. It gives you a new appreciation for life. It has happened to me many times and lately with my mum and dad. That we are to be thankful for life, for all that it represents. Each step is a gift. Each day, each breath, each heartbeat is a gift from God. So we need to develop a better attitude toward the burdens and the tasks and the struggles that come our way. And this is what the Apostle Paul said about his ministry in Asia. And he calls it like it is and it wasn't pretty. He described the situation there in ministry. And I found myself in this situation many times. And it doesn't stop. And this is what he said, he says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experience in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. 
Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Now, if we stop right there and, and, and grudgingly accept life as nothing but a burden, then we will miss the rest of the story that follows. The reason why of that struggle, of that trial, that particular time. So we are thankful to the Apostle Paul that he doesn't stop there. He continues to tell us what happened. So in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 to 10, he, he, he concludes by this. He says, but this happened, but, right? But this happened so that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. This is the, the Jesus of the resurrection, who gives life to the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. Have you noticed there that the three times he mentions the word deliverance? He has delivered us, he is delivering us, and he will deliver us. And, and our hope is not set on our strength, on our abilities, on our skills, on our wisdom. Our hopes are set on him. And, and this is the Lord of the resurrection who gives life to the dead. The Lord of life. Similarly for us, we need to see this life more than just a bit of medicine, but as a, as a practice, as a warm-up for eternity. And I think the old adage is, is true, that the outlook does help to determine the outcome. Outlook does help to determine the outcome, which leads to the next point. Not only is life a gift from God, but eternity is a gift from God. Verses, verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. The, the first part of verse 11 is this positive promise to us. The fact that God has made everything beautiful in his time. And it can also be interpreted as it had made everything suitable or, or appropriate. There is a plan and God does have a purpose even though we aren't able to discern it all of the time. Because we are not God. We can't see the whole picture. Our mortality, we can't be everywhere at the same time. We can't see what's going to happen tomorrow. We don't know. Our mortal bodies are not able to see the whole, the whole picture. And for the most time, we get glimpses of what it looks like by observing and, and then as we open his word, we, our vision expands a bit more. This is why sometimes it's, it's helpful to stop and look backward and like the prophet, like Samuel, prophet Samuel say, thus far has the Lord helped us. I look back and I say, well, you know, thus far, look back in 58 years of my life and say, 
yeah, look at it. How much God has helped me. And you can look back and say, past 25 years or 85 years, thus far, up till now, he has been with us. And the pattern of him being with us in the past surely gives us an assurance that he's going to be with us in the days to come. And then in the next few words we find the, the first of two things that this life holds for us Christians. It says that he has also set eternity in the hearts of men. This means that God has put a little bit of eternity in our hearts and minds. Um, it means that God has given every human being a sense of how infinite he is. Yet not enough because of our fallenness to, to fully grasp it, because we were created as for eternity, before the fall. And then we came, became mortal beings. But he has made us for a hunger, for eternity. This spiritual chip given to us at conception is not given to animals. Your dog doesn't have it, your cat, or the flies, or mosquitoes, or the sheep. It was given to you because you have been, you alone have been created in God's image. This, and this creates an uncomfortable dissatisfaction with this life because we are longing always for our eternal home. We're always sort of saying, there has to be more than this. There's, there's this holy, uncomfortable dissatisfaction with the way that things are around us. There has to be more. Blaise Pascal was a, a brilliant French mathematician, physician, inventor and a Christian philosopher. He lived in the 17th century and he actually did studies in the study of, of vacuum. Not vacuum cleaners, okay? Vacuum, alright? And he said this, he says, there is a a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing but only by God the Creator made known through Jesus Christ. So look, a God-shaped vacuum, that's, that's what it is. That's what it is. And we try and fill it with all different things, right? To occupy ourselves. But only God can fill it. We have all heard of Arthur Stace, um, otherwise known as Mr. Eternity, right? Arthur was influenced to write Eternity with chalk after on the streets and the footpaths of Sydney as he got out at night and, and he, um, he was inspired to write these words, Eternity, after listening to a sermon by the Reverend John Ridley. Now, John... He fought in World War I and he was a, he was a war hero uh, by any stretch of the imagination. He actually fought for four years. He was uh, 
wounded once, almost died, and he recovered and went back to war. And so he returned uh, a hero. He received a military cross. And after returning home, he became renowned. He became a renowned evangelist. I mean, having seen so much death in war, having survived it, he preached a sermon that he called "The Echoes of Eternity." The Echoes of Eternity. It was based on Isaiah chapter fifty-seven, verse fifteen. And I'm going to read you part of the sermon. And the sermon starts like this. It says, Eternity, like a solitary mountain peak jutting far above its fellows and standing in stately isolation. So this word appeals to me tonight, the Mount Everest of Scripture. Eternity, I hear it coming out of the past, gathering strength like a roll of thunder and bursting with Loud clap in the present. It goes sweeping on with incessant rolls and rumblings into the unknown future. Surely among all the subjects that face the preacher today, there is none more momentous than eternity. Where can one start on it? For it has no beginning. Where can one leave off? For it has no ending. How can one limit the subject? For it has no boundaries. It is an endless chain. It is an ageless matter. It is a sea without coastline. But vast as the subject is, yet far vaster is its importance to the souls of men. And then he said this. These are the words that captured Arthur States. Eternity, eternity. I wish that I could sound or shout that word to everyone on the streets of Sydney. Eternity. Friends, you have to meet it. Where will you spend eternity? End of quote. Their listening was, by that stage in in Burton Street Baptist Church, uh, listening was Arthur Stace. He was converted months before, but he accepted the challenge. And from then on, he wrote the words more than half a million times on the Sydney streets. And, and you would have seen the words across the Harbour Bridge in the year 2000. So, so we need to be prepared for eternity. And the most important of all these preparations is trusting the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour. Location, location, location. Eternity is going to be heaven or it's going to be hell. They are both eternal. And planning for the life to come can't begin at the moment where you start feeling sick. Right? You have to do it now while God has given you time. And if you haven't given your life turn your life over to Christ, what are you waiting for? You might not have another opportunity. We need, we need to turn our lives over to Jesus. Accept his gift of salvation made only possible through his sacrifice on the cross. And as we prepare for eternity... It's encouraging to know, it's actually 
comforting to know that this is, this is what Jesus said to his disciples and to us. He says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you may also be with me where I am. John 14 verse 3. So as as you prepare, please understand that Jesus has already prepared a place for you. He's making preparations. That's his promise, right? It would be therefore, it would be sad then if we become so preoccupied, so comfortable, so enamoured with this world that eternity is pushed so far away that we don't even think about it. Which is the very opposite of what John Ridley, the challenge that he gave, right? Let's not be like the child who's used to getting whatever he wants, he or she wants, toys, games, whatever, throughout the year, that he has no real treat awaiting for him at Christmas time. What can I possibly get at Christmas that I already don't have throughout the year? Just like a day like any other, right? Full of presents and full of treats. And someone once asked in a sermon, they, they asked the question, what do you give a child who has everything? Right? A child who by some chance never hears, opposite to that, you know, on the other side of that, if a child, for example, never hears, never heard about Christmas, never has any idea about what's coming, and then suddenly Christmas is there, he doesn't quite know how to react for the child who's, you know, it's there and he's like, wow, this is amazing. Because he doesn't quite know what it's all about. Whereas the other one, he says, well, oh yeah, this is what I, I know what I'm getting, you know. There's no surprise, there's no wonder. Are we so enamoured with this world that eternity, heaven, has no wonder anymore? Really? Are we so, have we fallen in love with this world so much? With all its trappings and everything that they, I don't know, I'm happy with this life. I don't really need a heaven, really. I think that's how a lot of people live. Let us, let us live our lives with this anxious anticipation a celebration of that morning that is to come. That when we open up the present and say, well, Lord, this is so much better than my eyes could even conceive. My eyes could describe it, right? Following on from that, in verses 12 to 14, the enjoyment of life is a gift from God. Enjoyment is a gift from God. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do and to do good while they live. That each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. 
Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. And this is the other marvellous gift in this life. That we can enjoy ourselves and take pleasure while we are here. Uh, Solomon is, is who experienced everything, right? He, he tried everything. He's not encouraging this pagan hedonism, but rather the, the practice of enjoying God's gifts as, as the fruit, as the reward of one's labour, no matter how difficult life may be. Yes, our lives are transitory, but whatever God does is forever. What we do is temporary, what God does is forever. And when we live our lives for him and let him have his way in our lives, then our lives become manageable, meaningful, purposeful. So instead of complaining about what we don't have, let's enjoy what we do have and be thankful to God for it, for the time that we have it. In answer to the question, where is happiness? Clarence McCartney said, it's not found in pleasure. Lord Byron lived such a life, if anyone did, and he wrote, the worm, the canker and the grief are mine alone. Happiness is not found in money. Jay Gould, the American rail, railroad magnate, had plenty of that. He lived in the uh, 1800s and when dying he said, I suppose I am the most miserable man on earth. It's not found in position and fame. Lord Beaconsfield enjoyed more than his share of both and he wrote, Youth is a mistake, manhood a struggle and old age a regret. It's not found in military glory. Alexander the Great conquered the known world in his day. Having done so, he wept in his tent because he said, there are no more worlds to conquer. God has given us, God has given us things in our lives that allow us to enjoy and to take pleasure in our days. Just think about the natural world around us. Don't be like has to be avoided. Who think that any enjoyment or pleasure is an evil of the flesh that has to be avoided. Don't be like that. God has given us a world of places, people and possibilities to explore. And you don't have to be a frequent flyer to, to take advantage of it, even though it might help. But this is what the Apostle Paul said to Timothy in, in, in 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 19. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God. And, and this is the crux, this is what he says. To put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Right? There it is right there. God provides us 
with everything for our enjoyment. Do I have to repeat it? You get it, right? Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. In this way they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Sure, there is trouble to be had in this world and many take the idea of pleasure too far and have no concern for God and his word. But there's no reason to abandon altogether the possibility of enjoyment. As we take God's word with us and as we go through each day and in whatever circumstances, whatever season of life we find ourselves in, we are enjoying ourselves. We are preparing ourselves And yes, there could be seasons of mourning, seasons of pain, but that will only be temporary. In the end, it will only be temporary for this life because then there's the next life to come. Yes, there is an appointed time for everything under heaven. And the current season, whether it's good, whether it's bad, whether it's happy or sad, God is in control. Even in bad times, even when we walk through the darkest valleys, God is at work to make sure that we don't lose the ability to rejoice in this life. Rejoice, and again I say rejoice. Finally, I want to leave you with these. It's a very good summary that I came across Three keys to happiness that I, that I would like to finish with this morning. The first one is, fret not, he loves you. It comes from the words of Jesus to his disciples. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Fret not, he loves you. Secondly, faint not, he holds you. Even there your hand will guide will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. Psalm 139. And thirdly, fear not, he keeps you. The Lord watches over you, the Lord is your shade at your right, at your right hand. From Psalm 121, verse 5. The Lord is good. Amen? Amen. Thank you. Let's stand as we sing our final song. Thank you.